For millennia, humans have been fascinated by their own bodies, how our organs are formed, how they work, what causes them to become diseased. Over the past few years, our knowledge has taken big steps forward thanks to organoid biology. That's what we'll focus on during this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, the Science Advancing Individualized Medicine. I'm Kathy Worser. Organoids are tiny 3D tissue cultures that are derived from stem cells. According to science.org, researchers have created a veritable zoo of organoids, including livers, pancreases, stomachs, hearts, and kidneys. These are like mini organs, which gives researchers new insights into human development and disease, and it could revolutionize fields like drug discovery. Joining us right now is Dr. Mitchell Lazar. He's the director of the Penn Diabetes Research Center at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the Willard and Rhoda Ware Professor in Diabetes and Metabolic Diseases at the University of Pennsylvania. Good to have you here, doctor. Nice to be here, Kathy. Also with us is Dr. Thomas Kosex with the Mayo Clinic's Department of Clinical Genomics. He's also with the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. He's a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. Doctor, good to have you here. Good to have you. Thank you. Dr. Kosex, I'm going to start with you. All organoids begin as stem cells, right? What happens after that? So basically what happens that these stem cells, you know, we can use uh, different factors. And then with these factors, you can... Uh, unlock genetic codes of different organs, and they start to develop into specific cell types, or even if you let them, you know, in three-dimensional organoid structures. And as you said in your intro, now we have really a wide variety of, of organs we can develop from liver to brain. And not just that, but even within the brain, you know, very specific areas of the brain can be developed like midbrain or uh, cortical areas. So I think this is really uh, something revolutionary. And I have to say that I might be biased because I love this system. And I think this is really a uh, great promise for uh, future, not just therapy development, but also understanding the disease. I might be biased with the organoids, but I love them. And also I love the potential that this uh, technology uh, can give us uh, in the uh, coming years. Dr. Lazar, I'm thinking because organoids can model the liver and the stomach and the pancreas and the like, it can reveal genetic uh, differences that affect the organ's function, obviously, but may it also give us a roadmap as to how the body might respond to specific drugs? Well, absolutely, Kathy. You know, organoids have advantages over mouse systems, for example, or rodent systems, because it's the human genes that are involved in the cells that are in these organoids. And many drugs, their function requires or works on uh, aspects of the genome, which are very different between humans and other species. So we can use the organs, organoids to measure, for example, in liver, metabolic parameters that drugs might be used to treat diabetes or to treat lipid disorders, sort of the good things that drugs do. And we can also look at the bad things that drugs do, some of the side effects that are caused by deleterious actions on the liver or on, for example, fat tissue and other tissue that we study in this way. Mm -hmm. What are the advantages compared to current methods of using organoids when it comes to developing medications or learning about their actions? You know, I would say uh, that, you know, while animal models are very useful, there are many differences between the structure and functions of the cells that compose an organ or an organoid and the interactions between the cells and that comprise the organoid. And these differences include not only the genes themselves in the genome, but also the proteins encoded by those genes that then in turn compose the cells and organs. So human organoids allow scientists to study the human aspect of the system 
as well as differences from one person to another. Dr. Kozik? Yeah, I fully agree with that. So as as uh, Dr. Lazar said, it's not just you know the genetic uh, background that that differs you know in between humans and um, uh, for example rodents like mouse and rat, and that is very hard to model in uh, in mouse models. And I think that has a very uh, significant limitation also when we try to understand the disease, but especially when we uh, develop uh, treatments. And I think in this uh, regard, organoids and also uh, iPSC-based, so induced pluripotent stem cell-based uh, model systems could be um, a fantastic tool really bridging this gap between you know, the human and the, uh, the animal research at this point. Dr. Lazar, I want to kind of drill down a little bit on your research. You have worked with both adipose and uh, hepatocyte organoids. Can you give us examples as to how these might have been used to support drug development or getting the right drug to the right patient? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, we can take a drug and we can expose the organoid to the drug and we can measure good things and bad things that the drug might do. And one thing that we've done is with the understanding that not all people respond the same to drugs, we've hypothesize that one of the differences might be the differences in the genome of the people. So our genomes are composed of billions of bases, which sometimes are used alphabetically. We use um, letters to describe them, A, C, G, and T. And even though we have billions that are the same, there's about 5 million that are different between two unrelated individuals. And we believe that some of these differences can be used to predict because they're causal in some of the differences, again, in the good and bad things that drugs might do. So by taking stem cells from, let's say, 10 different people and differentiating them into making liver or hepatocyte organoids out of them and then exposing them to certain drugs, we can see if there's differences that are reproducible from one person to another, and then see if those can predict the actual side effects or benefits of the medicines in, the per- in people. Wow, interesting. So when you first started to work with this, what were your expectations? We kind of went after what I would call low-hanging fruit in the sense that some of the drugs that are used in the clinic actually work on proteins that work by actually reading the letter code of the DNA. And one of those classes of drugs are glucocorticoids, drugs like prednisone or hydrocortisone that are used to treat all sorts of inflammatory diseases ranging from rheumatoid arthritis to inflammatory bowel disease to lupus, asthma, and so on. And they are terrific, and millions of people have been exposed to these drugs. But unfortunately, with chronic use, people develop side effects that are metabolic, that are effects due to effects on not immune cells, which are the good things, but effects on the liver or on fat cells. And so what we did was to look at liver organoids, hepatocyte organoids, and ask about metabolic effects of glucocorticoids on each of, in this case, 11 different people. And we found examples of single bases that affected how the drug work in the genome that we thought could possibly predict which people, if you knew that they had this code in their body, would be either protected or unfortunately, deleteriously affected by getting glucocorticoid drugs like prednisone and getting diabetes, for example. And so that's what we did. We did it all in the organoids because it's safe and it's not in people. And then we went back to to studies where, where people had been 
studied prospectively and found that we could indeed predict for what we found in the organoids who among the people that were treated with glucocorticoids would have an increase in their blood sugar or diabetes. Now, I want to bring Dr. Kozik into the conversation because you study patients with mitochondrial disease. And I'm wondering, how do you use organoids in your research? So when we started to work with um, these uh, stem cell-based model systems, I got really very excited because, you know, the specific type of mitochondrial disease that I'm uh, studying that is related to the uh, genetic material, which is in the mitochondria. As you may know that um, every human cell has two genetic materials. One is in the nucleus and one cell is in the mitochondria. And unfortunately, at this point, it is, I mean, now it is possible, but up to uh, two years ago, it was not really possible to edit the mitochondrial DNA. And that resulted in really a serious limitation in any model systems that we could develop. Specifically, we had no animal models and not even uh, uh, other cellular models, you know, which were edited regarding the mitochondria DNA. The only tool we had that was maybe patient-derived fibroblasts or maybe muscle cells. But of course, again, they do not really represent the metabolism and also the, uh, the, the proteome of, let's say, of a brain or a cardiac cell or a muscle cell. And then I got, you know, um, contact with a colleague who started to work with organoids and, and iPSC-based uh, model systems. And we uh, developed these first human and specifically for this mitochondrial disorder-based models, you know, with uh, neurons and also brain organoids. And we started to study them. And I was really, how would I say, positively surprised how wonderful data we could really uh, get out of it. And then after that, when we correlate these, you know, with known physiological or pathophysiological changes related to a specific uh, disease presentation, we could really understand, you know, what's going on. And we were able to mechanistically study and also uh, find, you know, uh, ways to modify these uh, responses and then develop or actually uh, discover novel therapies in these uh, mitochondrial disorders. All this sounds Fascinating, but I, I'm wondering about the limitations of organoids. What have you both found? Dr. Lazar? That's a great question. And I would say that the main limitations have to do with the fact that it's not currently possible to exactly replicate the organ that exists in the body. We'd love to make a liver organoid. We sometimes call it a liver organoid, but livers have lots of specialized cell types, not just the hepatocyte, which is the main liver cell. And those cells have to be at a certain relationship to one another. And furthermore, when we study that organoid in the lab, it's not in the context of a normal blood supply or blood system where they could communicate with other tissues via hormones. They don't have a nervous system to supply them with neural signals. And this will be the challenge to figure out a way in the lab to replicate or simulate the really physiological situation for an organ like the liver. I agree. And we have the same limitations if you think of the brain or also the, uh, the heart. So we can develop certain cell types, you know, and then it, it becomes a more complex. But of course, it is far from the complexity of the human brain or from the human heart itself. And especially with regard to the brain, you know. And I think also in the heart, if you develop these organoids or these cell models, they are actually in a very early developmental stage. So we cannot really follow up on them when they fully develop. And that is also an advantage because we can recapitulate the human development in these systems and then can give us answers, you know, how the brain develops in these early stages. 
But of course, at one point it stops because at this point of technology, we cannot really resolve the issue of the blood circulation, you know, innervation of these organs, and that limits how they further develop. And I think we have to be aware of these limitations when we interpret the mechanistic studies and also drug discovery studies. But I think the field is developing so fast. And now we have, you know, people who put together different organoids, you know, like brain and muscle, and they start to innervate and they start to develop connections. I also know colleagues, they develop these 3D uh, matrices. And then within those will these organoids develop and then it allows some sort of circulation. So I think we will see a, a fantastic improvement in these uh, technologies, which will somewhat, you know, decrease these limitations in the future. This may be a very simplistic question, and I apologize, but I wonder, the models would not include an immune system, right, which would likely influences how disease develops. So that would be, I think, also a challenge. Yes, I agree. Yeah, agree. Okay, so just wondering about that. Also, I would think another hurdle would be they remain hard to turn out in large, consistent batches needed for drug screening, right, and other efforts. Yeah, I think that there's always going to be biological variability in some of these. I completely agree, though, with Dr. Kozik and his optimism about the future. And, you know, you could even imagine, it's not even imagination, it's happening, 3D printer kind of things where you could sort of, ter- sort of type of cell. You'd almost have a color by number system where you'd have a compartment you want your immune cells, a compartment you want your hepatocytes, a compartment you want your nerve cells, and you would just kind of print it out. So future is rosy. What would be the biggest potential of organoids for precision medicine, do you think, when it comes to at the bedside for patients? So if I may, from, from again, maybe this is a biased sort of approach. As we said, you know, these organoids, they really uh, represent the human genome, you know, the human prurium with the limitations that we mentioned. And I think that's not always true when you uh, have a look at, you know, or actually study a mouse uh, system. So I think in drug development, this is also going to be very important that now with these uh, systems and these models, we can really study disease-relevant tissues. So we can actually look at treatments, you know, or or drug discovery or repurposing drugs using disease-relevant tissues, let it be brain or heart or muscle. Like in mitochondrial disorders, as I said, so far, you know, if there were animal models that was possible to do some drug discovery, or they used uh, yeast or maybe some uh, fibroblast models, but a yeast and a fibroblast model is not really a brain. It's not really a heart. It's not really a muscle tissue or a muscle cell. So I think the organoids and these cell-based models, uh, human cell-based models, really give this opportunity for us. And maybe one more thing, and I think that Dr. Lazar is also maybe looking in this direction, what could be a really a fantastic personalized or precision medicine in this field, that we know that certain disorders, they, they respond to multiple drugs, and one individual responds to one drug, and the other individual responds to another drug. And we don't know that at this point, you know, how this response is going to be when we start treating these patients. And I think as this uh, technology develops, just uh, imagine how the uh, genomic technology develops. And now it's basically an everyday, almost an everyday tool to uh, have a gene sequence. Maybe we can also develop and really have these systems so fastly developing and also ready for use that, for example, we, uh, a patient comes in, we take a fibroblast, develop a disease-relevant tissue, let it be brain or liver or, or a muscle. We try these different treatment options and we can tell that which treatment is really beneficial for that individual. Maybe even we can actually design the proper dose of a drug. So I think this, this could be a possibility. And I really believe that this 
within a decade will be a possibility to uh, have these sort of bedside really precision medicine based on these organoid or uh, human cell-based uh, technologies. What do you think, Dr. Lazar? Well, you know, I, if I could amplify on, on that great point that Dr. Tolish just made, you were talking about bedside work. Well, the amazing thing is that we can take the skin cells from an individual and we can convert them back to stem cells using just four factors. There was a Nobel Prize given for this technology. And by doing this, you avoid any concerns, religious or other, about the use of stem cells because you're starting with an adult stem cell. There's no embryo involved. So you kind of go backwards. And now you have something that you can go forwards and look at, make a heart, make a liver, make a brain with the exact DNA of the person who was ill or you wanted to learn more about. So that part of this, as opposed to, let's say, having a stem cell line, which is just one person's DNA that's not completely related to your patient. So I think that's another avenue in which the sort of, if you will, bedside to bench and back is almost limitless in terms of the possibilities. What is the most exciting part of the research you're doing right now, both of you? Because I know you're you're both involved in some very interesting research. What is exciting you right now, Dr. Lazar? Well, we're a little bit related to my previous answer. We're trying to personalize the effects of the drugs and figure out which predictive bases, letters in the genome, can, again, predict which people get diabetes. And then we really want to test this. We've we've shown in some systems that we can do it, but we've kind of picked the easiest systems. For example, our best data now are in children treated with glucocorticoids, but the children didn't start with diabetes. They didn't start with a weight problem. So it's really easy to tell which ones developed it and which ones didn't. But the problem we run into with some of the patients that have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis who are adults is they may already have diabetes. They've already been treated with steroids. They'll already be overweight. And so it gets harder for us to tease out over time what is truly the effect of the drug versus just other circumstances. And in a lot of these type of studies, if you have you know what are called false negatives or false positives, like you say a person did respond, but they really didn't, it really makes it hard to do the analysis. So we're working with clinicians to try to do a better job of that. Dr. Kozik, in your research right now, what's the most exciting part of it for you? I think we have two uh, most exciting maybe uh, aspects. One is really the mechanistic studies, you know, and I'm not just working in the uh, mitochondrial disorders, but I also work together with my wife. She's a clinical geneticist and she's in uh, uh, focused and, and really specialized in congenital disorders of right isolation. And as I said, both of these disorders share one thing. It's, it's at this point, you know, it's very current technological level. It's very challenging to design animal models or really have animal models which are useful. So we were really uh, limited in our toolkit, you know, to study these disorders. And the uh, stem cell-based technology that gave us an enormous possibility to study the mechanism of disease, you know, and also how the different tissues or maybe organs are affected by these disorders. And the other aspect, which is really exciting, that we use these uh, human cell-based uh, model systems to discover and also validate uh, no novel drug treatments for these uh, rare metabolic disorders, which are really not uh, having treatments at the moment. And uh, this is really exciting. And it, it also uses drug repurposing, which may not be that exciting, you know, with regard to uh, intellectual property. But I think the drug repurposing and using these systems 
could really accelerate a moving a drug target to a clinical uh, uh, treatment. And we have some examples where, you know, such a, a drug repurposing um, uh, effort within three, four years, actually, from the bench, basically now uh, is in a clinical trial. Wow. Gentlemen, thank you so much for the insightful conversation. And thank you for the work that you're both doing. We appreciate it. Thank you for much inviting us. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Mitchell Lazar has been with us. He's the director of the Penn Diabetes Research Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Thomas Kosix is with the Mayo Clinic's Department of Clinical Genomics and with the Laboratory Medicine and Pathology Department as well. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Werzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being.